So anyway, I have to drink a lot. I'm about four years out of throat cancer. And uh, there's just all sorts of little sidebar things that happen if you manage to survive the, uh, you manage to survive the treatment. And uh, part for me is I have very little saliva, so I apologize that I have to stop and do that a lot. I'm, I'm gonna talk a few minutes about an old friend of mine, something that's been really, really important to me in my life. Really, this old friend, um, we've been together for all of my 67 years. Some of you all can relate to this. Were you ever, have you ever used the phrase, I was born in church, or I was raised in church? Now, I know not all of you were born in church, and not all of you were raised in church, but I was. Now, we didn't have any birthing apparatus there or anything like that, but we nevertheless know what we're talking about. It's like a lot of me was formed in church. Now, I know some of us in this room, myself included, have had some fallen outs with the church. Uh, I was a, an accountant. I had no intention of being a minister of any kind. And on November 28, 1972, the company, the religious organization that I was working for, I was the chief financial officer on November 28, 1972, our plane crashed and killed the three ministers and I needed a job. So I went and went to work at a church and I had lots of crooks and crevices and cracks and did lots of different things and became a Southern Baptist home missionary and planted the first ever contemporary model worship service and published a magazine, did a bunch of different things, and then got divorced. They quit sending me mail. I'm telling you, literally, I was on the state executive committee. They quit sending me mail. They didn't say, hey, are you okay? Or can we help you? Or would you like, don't show up around here anymore. They just quit sending me mail, rather. Just, and uh, it kind of made me mad a little bit. But I have to tell you, I've learned over the years, where I grew up, uh, did you all ever get the church pinch? You know, did your mother ever sit beside you and like reach right down by the back of your legs and sort of just get a hold of skin and twist it? That was, that was the preliminary to the Jim Whit cherry tree switch. Because right next door to our little Presbyterian church, Jim Whit, who was the meanest man that I've ever known, I never understood why he wouldn't let a kid walk through his yard, but mama could go over and break things off of his tree and come back and spank me with it, and it was all okay. So I have learned that it's no more fair to hold cherry trees responsible for the pain of my whipping than it would be to hold the church responsible for the, chain, for the pain of the behavior that I experienced from some of the people in it. Um, it's not the church's fault. It's been a, you know, I, I don't know, maybe they, if we could tell them as older persons, stay with her. It's good for the long haul. Um, twice in my life I've come home after the doctor said, well, it's cancer. Um, you know, life gets kind of real at that point in time. You can be cocky and theological and philosophical and everything else, but sometimes you just need some place to fall where you're gonna be held. So the church has been there for me. The, the pain I may have experienced around it is, is not the church's fault. Now, you might say, is the church relevant today? Now, next week, Stan's gonna do sort of the theological discussion of our uh, Grace Point 101, and he'll get into a whole bunch of words a lot larger than, than I can. So I just wanna talk about some of the practical consequences and kind of where I see 
church today. I realize the church is not functional or effective for everybody right now. If I may be embarrassingly biographic, I, I'd hope that my youngest child would be with me tonight. My oldest uh, child is marginally engaged in church. My middle child is in St. Louis and the mother of three beautiful granddaughters. My youngest child came out transgendered about 18, year, 18 months ago and was sexually assaulted within the first six weeks of that experience. Life has been very tough and very complicated. And uh, she's not real happy to be right here. She's not mad, she's not, but it's just like, what's the point, you know? It's a little bit, we, we just need to find a better world. So I don't want you to think that I'm just some unrealistic old guy who's you know, trying to perpetuate the path on which I got set for, through no fault of my own. Um, the church, I think the church remains the instrument. And where we are failing, is it's on us. It's, it's not on anything but us, really. Um, I want to read uh, one little tiny piece of scripture. And I'm not going to do anything with it biblically or theologically because it just takes you down all sorts of roads. But this one is Jesus speaking to Peter. The main reason I want to read this to you is because I'm amazed that Jesus is still talking to Peter. Of all the people in Scripture, I relate a lot to Peter. Impulsive, wanted to do right. Can you imagine being Peter, spending the rest of your life in a rural part of the world where most every morning you would hear a rooster crow? And that rooster would remind you of the overnight you spent hiding from the person you were committed to? Can you imagine getting out of the boat and walking on water and then ending up wet? I mean, I'm all the time, I mean, I, Peter and I, I relate to that. Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church. And I just think that this is a divinely instituted agency. This is not something that we got together in order to come up with tax advantages. It's not a way we collect folks on, I would say Sunday morning, but our, it could be this abysmal Saturday night thing we're doing. Oh, I'm not supposed to say that that way, am I? <laughs> okay, maybe I shouldn't have said it quite that way. But I think the church, I think the church has got a lot of good days ahead of it. What I hope will happen tonight is that, that whenever we're done with this little bit of time together, I hope you'll feel good about the church at large, and I hope you'll feel good about our church in particular. In 1973, I wrote my first ever published magazine journal article. It was called The Nature and Mission of the Church. It appeared in a magazine called Bring Them In. I was a Southern Baptist minister, you can imagine the pretext, the context, the subtext, and every other text of that objective. But in that article, I quoted the Swiss theologian, Emil Brunner, who said, the church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. Where there is no mission, there is no church. There actually is no reason for us to gather except for the mission to which we are called. Otherwise, we're just sort of a disassociative group of folks who would be better off 
you know, hanging out at a bar. At least I would. I, I like, you know, I probably shouldn't go there, Carol. <laughs> but the thing that knits us, that holds us, the North Star, is our mission. Now you say, well, what is the mission? Well, I used to know what the mission was. That's why I wrote that article. I was 22 years old and I was sure of everything. And the things I wasn't sure of was just because I hadn't decided to think about it yet because it, it was just one impulsive moment away before I would have the answer. But I think one of the things that we will discover is, is over the next few weeks and months in this special congregation called Grace Point, I think we're going to ask ourselves, what is the mission? What is the thing that makes us fire? Because if I say there's ash or there's smoke, I can say there's where a fire was, I could say there's where a fire might be, but only with the flame can I identify the fire. And so that's the way it really is. According to Bruner, the church exists in our mission. And I think we're gonna be asking you all to participate with us in identifying what that mission is today, like right now, in this world, in this town, in this place, with all the amazing changes that are, that are going on. I mean, the fact is churches have fought for and struggled over the nature and mission question for thousands of years. In 1978, I was a minister at First Baptist Church of West Frankfort, Illinois. An older gentleman died, and to everyone's surprise, he left the church with a really large sum of money. The million-dollar debate for the soul of the church centered around the burning question of the then-emergent trend, would we add more racquetball courts and fewer basketball courts to the church gymnasium. This was the battle royale for our congregation. The purists, the traditionalists, wanted more basketball space. The progressives were calling for the new thing. They wanted racquetball courts. Sadly for the landscape of faith, the novelty. <laughs> well, you know those fights occurred. I was right there in the middle of them. And, and I was for basketball courts, by the way. <laughs> I played basketball better than racquetball, and I was at the time pretty traditional. If God had racquetball courts, well, you know the answer. So for the landscape of faith, the novelty of church provided recreational space began to be replaced with public funds, and the ministry of the church began to lose ground to the City Department of Parks and Recreation. I just said a whole lot there. Did you hear what I said? We battled over basketball courts and racquetball courts, and pretty soon, taxpayer dollars did what we thought we were supposed to be doing. I'm not going to make anybody feel bad if you like church basketball, because that's actually how I became a Baptist. It's literally a true story. I was on a really good team in high school. Two of my buddies was on the Baptist team across county, and it was tournament time. They said, Frog, that was my name. Frog, if you'll come play on our team, we'll win the tournament. Well, I said, sure. I said, but you got to go to church. I was Presbyterian. I said, I can handle that. So I got to church that Sunday morning over at the Baptist church. I go to church, come in there in a little while. They come over and say, Frogman, they done checked out some of the rules. Since season's already started, you can't play until or unless you're a member of the church. So I said, well, what do I have to do? Well, you have to be baptized. So, okay. <laughs> so, of course, I would have been for basketball courts because I got baptized that night because the game was the next night. <laughs> These were the priorities. 
We, we're going to need to be asking ourselves, what are the priorities? What is the mission? What is the thing that makes us fire as opposed to just a collection of folks who are gathered? What is that thing for the church both at large and the church local? Who are we and what do we do? Or what should we do is a very, very present question. It's particularly so for Grace Point. I'm, I, I don't want to sound like I, I don't know how to say I'm in a role where I see, know, and talk to maybe, maybe as many faith leaders as, there are not many people that talk to more faith leaders right now than I do. And that's, I'm not trying to brag in saying that, I'm just saying it's where I am. In my role as the president and producer of the Wild Goose Festival, I'm involved with dozens and dozens and hundreds of folks every single week. Now you look around this room and say, well, that can't possibly be true, but do you know what? Hundreds of people, hundreds of pastors, hundreds of churches, hundreds of theologians, hundreds of seminary presidents have their eyes on this room tonight. And I mean that very sincerely. It's literally true, isn't it? This thing called Grace Point, this is, this is our time and place. In the Esther terms, who knows, but that we have actually been brought together for just such a time and place as this. There's a whole lot of folks depending on us. There's a whole lot of folks that's going to make a difference on what we do. There are folks that's going to determine whether the church is a safe place or a hate place, largely in many respects because of how we respond to some of these things. I often find myself at a loss to try to explain Grace Point. Does that happen for anybody else? Last Wednesday night, I called home on the way home uh, as I was leaving here from Midrash because I knew that mom, like me, she would have been to prayer meeting. Mom's 87. She goes where she wants to go and does what she wants to do. Special terms of endearment that provide uh, sort of a shorthand communication system. One of our terms, lovingly and accurately applied to mom, goes like this. She's just full of piss and vinegar. And that's true. How was church, I asked. It was good. It was good, she said. And then she proceeded to tell me who was there. It didn't take long. Not nearly so long as her telling me who wasn't there and why. And it wasn't judgmental. She just needed, thought I needed to know who was sick and who worked late and all those sorts of things. And so I had all of that information supplied to me. And she said, I'm cleaning up my dishes. You know, I have to take my beans or some of them just say, it just ain't even prayer meeting. We don't have Joretta's beans. Then she asked me, she says, how was your church? And I tried once again to explain Grace Point and Midrash. I want to add that mom is progressive and doesn't trend much toward traditional thought, but she summed everything up with this reply. Well, she said, change is everywhere. Used to be you could wear pants to church, and now they're wearing shorts. <laughs> this is a time of a lot of change in the world of the church. Unfortunately, if you aren't up for the challenge of living in the early 21st century, perhaps you can secure the keys to an old DeLorean and go back to a different future. But this is the place you're set. This is the place you are. Uh, literally, paradigm change is, is the dominant experience of today, not just in religious world, 
But the paradigm change in terms of geopolitics, the paradigm change in terms of economic equilibrium, every major system of, of, of this planet has, is in the middle of huge change. Now, I say to my students, one of the things that, that I envy them for and regret for myself is that they will live long enough to get to make the rules of this new world because somebody's going to make the rules of the new world. And it could be evil people who celebrate some of the craziest things in the world, or it could be people who can see not only what is possible and what is possible and what is probable and what's probably going to happen, but they can also determine what is preferable and create a world around preferable, hopeful kinds of things. Change means a mix of old and new. Literally existing side by side. You experience that in your own life. Sometimes the old is kind of hanging on and the new is elbowing it out of its way. We call that boundary spanning. This is a boundary spanning time. So if you feel like that your life is somewhat destabilized, it's not anybody's fault but the place and time you were born. Literally, the world is, is shifting and changing. Boundary spanning is, is like having one foot on the, on, on the shore and one foot in the boat. If you don't do it right, it can be a mess. My sister, my sister doesn't mind me saying this about her. My sister is a large woman. That doesn't mean she's obese. She's, she's tall. My dad was like four inches taller than me. We're like, we're, we're big people. My sister and I were in my little 10 foot John boat on my pond up on the farm out in Kentucky. Put my sister and I both in a little 10 foot John boat. Most of you all don't know how to relate to this, but the boat is only about that far out of the water because it's just sort of sunk way down. My sister is more impulsive than I am. We were rolling, rowed it back into shore after it was about dark, and I'm trying to give her instructions. Jenny, I sit real still until we get the boat stabilized on the bank. No, 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 I can do this, I can do this. So she's getting up. Sure enough. She had one foot in the boat. Whenever she stepped out and put the other one on the bank, when the weight shifted, the boat lifted about eight inches, and she fell face first in the pond. Now, if you, any of you all are country folks, you know the edge of a pond where you have cows. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Lost her glasses in there. I'm, I'm down there like telling myself it's just mud trying to find her glasses. She was soaking wet. My youngest child was with us. We, we got Annalise to safety. She was, I mean, dripping wet. So we got in the car and head back into town about six miles away. I'm in my car and she's in the pickup truck because she's too wet to be in a car. She's flying really, really, really fast. I, by the way, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but she's down in nothing but panties and her bra. So you got this big woman, mud-covered, panties and bra, driving the pickup truck back home. Now, my mother has gone through some health issues. If you're a country person, you know everybody knows everybody's business. Jennifer comes flying down the street, and I'm behind her. My cousin Jerry looks out the window and sees me and Jennifer both rushing fast to mom's house. He assumes mom got sick. So he takes off up there. 
And when he gets there, Jennifer is in the garage. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was an embarrassing time for a lot of people. <laughs> you know that, oh, gee, I'm sorry. It's like, oh, golly. He said, I thought Aunt Joe was sick. So she learned a lot, and I learned a lot about, about boundary spanning. It can, it can really flip you. It can really mess you up. But the people who do it right and who do it well will be the ones that create the rules of the new world. And there are ways to do it. And hopefully over these next few months, we'll work on that together. It's a good thing. Paradigmatic change is a good thing. I actually view change as a good thing. How many of you all have a tendency to view change as a good thing? I'm, I'm, I'm a very big fan. In fact, let me say this. If you don't view change as a good thing, then you had running water and indoor toilets. Because I, I didn't. So if you ever have an outhouse, you'll be very happy of flushing and moving and changing. It'll make a difference in your life. We're in the process of birthing a new normal, a new way of viewing the world. This is no time to be silent. In my role as president and producer of the Wild Goose Festival, um, it, we focus on spirit, music, justice, and arts. I was interviewed last week by a writer from a, a magazine, my favorite magazine, called Christian Century. The writer was pretty mesmerized by the wide range of persons speaking at the festival. Uh, she said the diversity in faith framework and race and sexual orientation and gender identity and age across so many dimensions was interesting to her. She kept using the word anomaly to describe this diversity as if somehow or the other, the unusual coming together of such a collection of people as an Episcopal priest and professor named Barbara Brown Taylor and a lesbian person of color and civil rights icon Ruby Sells, Baptist Arena favored Jen Hatmaker, by the way, whose books were burned by Lifeway less than two years ago. Hipsters and Gen Xers and groups not yet named, transgendered speakers and transgendered leaders, denominational leaders, publishing executives, folks like Jackie Lewis and Shane Claiborne and Otis Moss and Diana Butler Bass and Brian McLaren and Frank Schaefer and Tony Campolo and our own Stan Mitchell. Our, our, our Friday night headliner is a person named Lyric. Lyric is a person of color and is lesbian. And how does all this somehow or the other make sense to have a Saturday night headliner named Amy Grant? She was like, what is this? And she kept pushing the idea of an anomaly. By the way, as an interesting side note, Jen Hatmaker sent me an email last Wednesday. She said, I interviewed Barbara Brown Taylor for my podcast yesterday, and she was so wonderful, I cried. Thanks for getting such amazing people at the Wild Goose. So I've already terrified one of your other speakers. I wasn't anticipating the conversation being about anomaly. So we chewed on it for a while and then it hit me. This arrangement, this collection, this gathering is not an anomaly. It's the new normal. We get to be involved in creating that new normal. We, we sort of have an obligation to be involved in creating that new normal. If you somehow or the other sense that this is your place, 
then it's your appointment and I thank you for standing with us in the garden of God as we plant new flowers because this new normal is going to be a beautiful place. It's going to be a better place. It's going to be a safe place. Mm. So I told her that. I said, you know, this isn't an anomaly. This is a new normal. And all we really need is a new vocabulary, a new vocabulary of faith to talk about it. So I hope that over the next week or so, you might take some time to think about what would the vocabulary of faith be? For example, at the center of all of my growing up faith vocabulary was always the word salvation. And some of us are still trying to figure out how we make sense out of the word salvation. But some of us are saying, it's just not on the agenda. So, well, you can't do that. You gotta rewire, you gotta retrofit you know, the, new, the new faith into our old language. Maybe not. If you never were lost, why did you ever need to be found? We keep coming up with different ways where we kind of work our way around that. What would be our new language of faith? That's not entirely, entirely a, a rhetorical question. I think the new language will be more horizontal than vertical. Think about that for a minute. When we talk about doing something and we like even say take something like Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs. You all know what I'm talking about? You go up Maslow's hierarchy of needs and there's a lower level and the upper level and the higher level and it's somehow the other like you're scratching and clawing your way up and you end up with like skint knuckles and, and, and bloody fingers as you try to make it to the top because we're thinking too vertically. What if we turn everything on its side and we just started thinking of things horizontally? Yes, there are sequential things. I agreed to use Maslow's example further that there are, that my need for shelter and my sexual needs and my need for food precedes my need for self-actualization, but somehow or the other, I'm not better because I got there. I think the new vocabulary of faith might be very horizontal. Even whenever I work in a leadership role, I'm, I'm the president. That means I get to hire people and fire people, and there's this whole thing, you know, and crap rolls downhill, and you've heard all that sort of stuff. What if even that's turned on its side? What if the new world that we create just doesn't think that way anymore. We're gonna to have to find words that will that. You know, another thing I think that the new words do is they'll emphasize community. I think the reason why we should gather, and I'm a little bit far out on this, okay, so don't get me in trouble too much here. I don't think there's any need for us to get together and tell God, God is great. Does that bother anybody when we say that? I mean, think about it. Kids, I want you all to get together, and what I'd like for you to do is just spend a little while waving at me and say, ooh, you're the coolest, finest, best daddy I ever had. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no, I tell my kids, go out and have some fun. Wouldn't you? Don't you? I mean, do you really want to? I mean, so I think it might not be even vertical that way. Well, then how can we do that? Because God's up there. But is God up there? Huh? No, 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 yeah, it's right here. This is us. To the heart of Shaddai, Mahatma Gandhi. We all are taught by those leaders and others that this is just a tent, that the essence of me is I am a spirit. I worship God in spirit and truth. 
My spirit connects with God's spirit, and it connects like this. It's not a patronizing pleading, oh, allow me to enter your space. It's this. So I think the, I think the new vocabulary of faith will be more about community and connection. And here's the thing, you can't love apart from community. You can't connect apart with others. So one of the things that's gonna to have to happen, if you wanna know one thing that is really a mess right now in Western civilization, it's the me first attitude. There's three forms of, 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 of living. There's dependent living, independent living, and interdependent living. I think the new vocabulary of faith will be a we vocabulary. That the highest thing you can do is to trend yourself to others. Bonhoeffer actually described Jesus Christ as the person for others. It's otherness. We'll learn to, to nest in a circle facing outward. And we'll feel all of the hopes and all the pains of all of the other people. And it'll be a better world. Let's create. Let's create this new story. Um, as you think about creating this story, I want to admonish you to use the advice from Elwood P. Dowd. Do you all know Elwood? Do you know the movie Harvey? Harvey. Jimmy Stewart starred in it. He was this guy who, whose, whose best friend was an invisible six-foot-tall rabbit. And everybody in the movie wanted Jimmy's money, and everybody was just doing all these terribly greedy things. But Jimmy had this really cool, vibey, comfortable way of living. So the whole, the whole movie is about people going crazy except for the crazy guy who has an invisible friend. So he's got to be crazy on the face. So finally the psychologist says, but L1, what do you do? How do you deal with reality? And Elwood says, well, I'm happy to say that Harvey and I have considered reality, and we've simply decided to overcome it. As we go to this new vocabulary of faith, don't be stuck with all of that pulling back into those things that have broken us and those things that have beaten us. If you haven't already seen it, go home tonight and look up Valerie Kaur, K-A-U-R, and her watch night service. She talks about darkness. We can change this by changing the storyline. And she goes through all of the things. It's got so many of us frightened now. But then she reminds us, she says, what if the darkness that we're experiencing is the darkness of the womb, not the darkness of the tomb? What if this is a great birthing that's happening right now? And I believe it is. That's the, that's the, the place to which we are called to be involved. As we leave here today, um, I hope that you'll reflect a little more gratefully, think a little more hopefully, lean a little more expectantly forward into both the privilege and the prospect of being at this specific room with these specific people, this specific appointment that's ours, this particular place in history. It's an extraordinary stewardship. Lee, I'm so glad in my fourth quarter I got in this game. You know, I, I, I'd hate to know this game was being played and I wasn't on the court. And I hope you feel that way also. This is our time. This is our place. This is our calling. There are hundreds and thousands of people with whom we come in contact with regularly that desperately hope to know that God is not man. The church is not a place of anger and judgment. Thousands that need to hear that you are enough 
You've never been not enough. You're not broken. This is our real special opportunity. So I just want to say this as I close with you. Go from this place knowing this. There's nothing you can do. Now think about this with me. Because all of us in the evangelical world used to say this, but we didn't believe it. We'd say there's nothing you can do that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you remember that? But then we'd explain you were separated, right? <laughs> and, and there is sort of a sense where it's like, well, it wasn't really anything you did. It was just because you got screwed up and born human. Because it was Adam and Eve and that whole garden thing, and now you're screwed up from now on in. That's just such a bogus piece of crap. We can't keep saying that to folks. I'm telling you, there's nothing you can do that can separate you from the love of God that's expressed in Christ Jesus. There's nothing you can do that can make God take your picture off the heavenly refrigerator. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.